Hi, adventurers. Welcome to the Adventure Within Reason podcast, a podcast about Minnesota State Parks. I'm Kelly. I'm David. And here we are on episode six, and we're really excited to talk to you about our recent trip to Fort Ridgely, which was a new state park for us. We got a new stamp in our Passport Club books. David, do you remember what number that brings us up to? I am at 37. I think you're one ahead of me, but we're... Um... In any event, we're, we're both a little over halfway to the finish line, so. Woo! And yeah. after our <laughs> misnamed uh, Prairie Fire Tour this summer, we will be, oh, much closer, I think, up in the uh, high 50s. So we're pretty excited about that, but details on that to come. So today we want to talk to you about Fort Ridgely, which is a park about an hour and 40 minutes southwest of the Twin Cities, sort of close to New Ulm, if you know your Minnesota uh, geography or small town geography. And we made this trip. Uh, we had intended to make it a double trip with Flandreau State Park, but I don't know if you guys know this, but state park trails are very icy in March. And we'd been hoping with the warmer weather that we would get less ice and more trails, but uh, alas, we didn't get that. So we actually visited the historical site at Fort Ridgely, but more on that in a second. David, do you want to talk a little bit about, do you maybe want to do your birding report up top? Yeah, not much of a birding report this time around. We, As Kelly mentioned, we weren't actually in Fort Ridgely for very long. It was about 20 degrees colder than the, the forecast had predicted. So, and as also previously mentioned, the, uh, the, the trail, the hiking club trail was about six inches of just ice, like. Thick, slippery ice, like, and we were not prepared to, to walk across that. We didn't have uh, ice grippers or uh, what do you call those walking stick thingy, thingy bobs? We didn't have those either. Trekking poles. Yeah, we didn't have trekking poles. And so we realized, okay, let's let's make the most out of this trip and not not be too sullen about the fact that we can't also cross off another hiking club trail. So we um, we we opted to go visit the you know I guess what a lot of people do when they visit this park and they've only got a half hour or an hour and they visit the historic military outpost, which is you know the namesake of the park, Fort Ridgely. Um, a bit of a somber visit, as we'll get into um, the bulk of this episode, will be about you know our thoughts on that. But in terms of the birding report, uh, yeah, uh, we, we saw more birds, you know, coming and going from the park than we did in the park. Because, you know, as we said, we weren't really actually at the park very long. But uh, on the way in, uh, we saw a pair of ring-necked pheasants near, near uh, Gibbon, Minnesota. And a little ways down the highway, we saw a bald eagle doing something that I don't normally see bald eagles do. You know, I usually see them soaring above me in the sky, even here in the city of Minneapolis, or if I'm swimming in Lake Harriet, sometimes I see them, uh, you know, hovering around the lake. You actually see them uh, all over the Twin Cities, incidentally. But um, in any event, I saw a bald eagle doing something I don't normally see them do, which is uh, hanging out on the ground. I don't know what he was doing. I, I assume he had maybe some prey. He had his back to us, so we just saw him kind of momentarily as we passed down the highway. Uh, while we were at the park, I was able to cross another lifer off my list. Uh, it's not necessarily like a rare bird, but, you know... Uh, being uh, city boys and girls, it's not a bird that we often see um, in our immediate environment. And it was a, a horned lark, which I wasn't able to immediately identify. Uh, I had to rely on some of the uh, really poorly shot cell phone video footage that I took of this little creature. By virtue of being on a Facebook group page for fellow birders, I was able to get a positive ID from uh, someone on there. So 
thanks to that fellow, uh, whoever he, he was, wherever he is. Um, Should we give a shout out to Minnesota Birding Light, which is a birding page that we are both on? Yeah, if you're on Facebook, um, there's a page, and you're into birding, obviously, uh, there's a page called Minnesota Birding Light, which I, I highly recommend. I've been on there a few years now. You know, the, the birding community gets kind of a bad rap. There's a lot of, I'll just say it, there's a lot of really smug, condescending people in the birding world. And that's reflected in the, uh, the, the tone of some of the, some of the social media birding pages. There's, a, there's kind of a just kind of smug, know-it-all vibe that you get from a lot of people. And I've never encountered that on Minnesota Birding Light. So if, if you want to be a part of a page where you can see uh, other people post their gorgeous photographs of, of, of birds in their, you know, their habitat, or if you've got a birding question, maybe you need help IDing a bird like I did with this, uh, with this horned lark. It's a great group of people who will uh, who will help you get that ID, and it's also just really fun um, to see to see uh, people's uh, you know photos of birds out there. So that's basically the the birding report for this one. Not a whole lot. We wrote. I don't know how long were you, would you say we were in the park actually? Like an hour, less than an hour. I think it was right around an hour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had planned on doing the hiking club trail, which would have you know taken us at, at probably two hours considering the conditions, but we were. We weren't prepared for that, so we just checked out the historic military outpost, Fort Ridgely. But before we get into that history, I want to talk a little bit about the park itself. I wasn't able to track down David uh, because I got kind of caught up in other research when Fort Ridgely was made into a state park. Did you pull that? No, let's pause the recording and I'll pull out the map. All right, I hope you enjoyed our lovely elevator music. Uh, we've since dug the map out of, uh, out of our hiking club bag. What do you got for us, Kelly? Fort Ridgely State Park was created in 1911 as a memorial to those who fought in the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. Exact words of the text. Great. So a little bit about this park is it seems to be primarily a park made out of prairies. There are nine miles of hiking trails and 13 miles of horse, uh, I guess, horseback riding trails. And something that we definitely checked out while we were there without going down it because we are old and fear for our bones was this park has like an insane sledding hill. We saw a bunch of kids going down it on cardboard boxes, on sleds that they had broken in the process of going down. So if you have little ones or are a kid at heart, it would probably be a great a great place to check out sledding in the winter. Yeah, <clears throat> if you recall, as we were leaving, we saw um, they had an, an intact cardboard box that was like you know big enough to put a small appliance in, and they had put one of their their friends in there, and they were about to push him down the hill as we were pulling away. They they actually jammed two kids in that box. Oh, there were two <laughs> kids in that box. That's the kind of reckless fun that you you, you like to see because it's it's got to be obviously very risky, but I think it's, uh, the, 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 the degree of risk, I think, is uh, pretty proportionate to the degree of fun. So shout out to those kids for having a good reckless time out there. Also, if you're looking for a place to do a weekend retreat, uh, I think Fort Ridgely would be a great place to do it. They have a chalet that they rent out. You have to call the park itself to rent out the chalet. It's not available through the online reservation system. It sleeps 15 people at night. It uh, can hold 30 during the day. 
pretty reasonably priced. I think about $75 overnight, which are, if you're splitting among 15 people, comes out to be pretty cheap. And it overlooks just really beautiful, a really beautiful landscape there that David and I are really excited to hike in this summer. Yeah, we're, it's um, as Kelly previously mentioned, this park is is a short drive from New Ulm, Minnesota, which is one of our favorite, you know, small town Minnesota destinations. Uh, pretty fair to say we're going to we're going to be going back here sometime soon and, and you know, during the warmer months and seeing what the hiking trails have to offer. All right. With that, I think is it time to transition to talking about the US Dakota War? Sure. Do you want to start or should I? So here's the thing. I, I've kind of been dreading this recording. It's an awkward thing to talk about, not just because of the, you know, the subject matter, obviously, but I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of shoot my mouth off about things like this because I'm not a historian, neither are you, Kelly. Uh, but, you know, we are, you know, people who try to understand this world of ours. And so I think it's uh, visiting this park was kind of like a slap in the face in that regard. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, we're the... <laughs> The things we take for granted, the, the the landscape and the geographies that we've grown up in, they used to belong to somebody else. And there was a very uh, concerted and deliberate set of policy choices over many, many years, centuries, to take the take those places away from the, from the native peoples that they used to belong to. And that's that's something that's hard to reconcile with, uh, not just as individuals, but as a, as a society. And I think it's something that Americans really still haven't acknowledged and come to terms with um, really in, in any meaningful way. Yeah, I don't know about you, David, but I grew up next door to Minnesota and I had, this is a part of history that I had no idea of. And as we've been doing our state park trips, I've noticed this is a war that affected across sort of the southern part of the state over six weeks. And uh, you know, we've seen placards and information about it, but we've never really made a concerted effort to dig, to dig into it. So we ask for some grace while we're doing this. Like David said, we're not historians, but we're doing our best, and we think it's an important thing to talk about and to share. So should I start? Um, I'll just share like kind of a personal anecdote. Maybe that would be like a good stepping stone to, to lead into the conversation here. Yeah, this is not a lecture, so don't please don't expect us to like, you know, provide you with a complete, you know, uh, historical analysis of this period or, or, or of this uh, U.S. Dakota War in particular. This is just kind of, you know, some sort of wondering aloud and for what it's worth, like an attempt to come to terms with this history. I, I grew up like you did, Kelly, in a pretty sub suburban, conservative sort of Americana environment. And, you know, you don't really, you're not taught the real history of this country. And I, when I was in high school, I remember... This is kind of a cliche thing to say, but I, I got my hands on a copy of Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and that book just kind of you know, blew my mind, and it, it made me understand uh, things about this country that I was never taught in, in public schools, and my parents never told me. I never, you know, friends didn't seem to be aware of them, and one of those was just the, the fact that this country was founded on genocidal policies, and the, the way that's kind of presented to you in you know high school history classes is, is almost like this very fatalistic, like, yeah, it's a very, very sad, lamentable thing, but it was kind of this just unavoidable historical process. And it wasn't, it definitely wasn't the result of actual, you know, policymakers who wanted to perpetuate the endless free real estate that this country was kind of founded on. 
It definitely wasn't that. It was just this thing that was bound to happen. And there's really nothing that could have been done about it then or that we can really do about it now other than just kind of vaguely feel sad about it and, you know, go watch uh, the Disney Pocahontas movie at the theater. And that's really, that's what else can you do, you know? And uh, when I read uh, People's History of the U.S. and books by other academics like uh, Ward Churchill and people like that, I kind of had to, it kind of forced me to open my eyes a little bit and, and recognize the real history of this country. Yeah, so I would like to start by sort of setting the scene for the battle at Fort Ridgely. So as a result of overhunting by settlers, the Dakota people were having a a difficult time hunting as they had to provide for their families. That combined with a really bad crop year and the lower Minnesota agency who was in charge of paying tribute to the Dakota people, or not tribute, but um, royalties is a better way of talking about it. They were incredibly late with their payment of food, blankets, and money. So the Dakota people were starving. And when they asked local merchants for supplies on credit, they were told to, quote, eat some grass. So, uh, you know, imagine your families are starving and you're living on land that has been forcibly taken away from you. Some Dakota felt forced to raid frontier houses and farms for food and supplies. And during these raids, they killed over 200 white settlers. Uh, Something I should have said is that the amount of money that the Dakota were owed, the inflation calculator that I found only went back to 1913, but they were owed $750,000 in 1862 money, which comes out to more than $21 million in current currency. So if you have an idea of how much money they were owed... You know, that's substantial. David, do you want me to keep going? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't want this to feel like a history lesson or a lecture. I think we should just talk about this as, you know, more or less as our like our knee-jerk reaction to seeing this monument to to U.S. colonialism, just, to, you know, in the middle of this prairie and, and a state park and how kind of unsettling that was, you know. Something that was uh, made clear, you know, you visit this monument and there are these little is placard the right word? I think a placard is like something you hold up at a protest, but like these basically these like signs on posts that are there so you can kind of give yourself a little walking tour. You know, I remember one of them said something to the effect of, you know, p- part of the part of the the settler colonial policy was to try to get as many of these native tribes as possible to give up like the, their hunter gatherer way of life and to embrace agriculture. And I think that was the reason for that is pretty clear is because you can't have you know, nomadic indigenous peoples living their traditional lives, that's that's eventually going to butt up, butt heads with, you know, the agricultural sort of um, underpinning of, of, of uh, you know, European civilization, which is that you have people who live in, you know, stationary and fixed places in small towns and in cities and in farmhouses. And it's going to be very weird if, like, every so often, you know, there's just a uh, hundred Dakota people riding through on horseback or walking through. And so I, I, I think that anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think there was a, um, based on the information I read at this site, it seems like there was a uh, deliberate effort to try to take, you know, those traditional um, hunter gatherer lifestyles away from indigenous peoples and try to basically force fixed stationary uh, farming life onto them. And I think that for the most part, from what I'm to understand, they say basically rejected that. Yeah, and that is a legacy that will go on to inform much of the United States policy towards indigenous people 
as time went on, you know, we could do, if we were a different kind of podcast, we could do a, a whole conversation about residential schools and what those did to our indigenous people. But, you know, we will encourage you to check that out on your own. Yeah, I think uh, kill the Indian, save the man was basically the motto of all these Catholic residential schools for a hundred years or more. Yeah, as I said, we're, we're not historians. I really don't want to pretend to be so. But yeah, there are. I, well, I think it's probably fair to say we'll put some some links in the show notes so that people can read so, uh, from 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 some sources from uh, people who actually know a little bit more about what they're talking about. But yeah, let's let's do our best here, nonetheless, to try to give like our, our presentation of. Uh, or just like our maybe visceral experience of what it was like to see see this monument and, and just be be in the same place as this uh, you know Dakota War. I mean, it was it was really horrifying. I I don't know how else to say it. I it was yeah. in other historical sites uh, as we've done our state park adventures, we've read about the uh, the mass execution of Dakota men in Mankato. It was, I think, 38 of them, all of whom were unfairly tried. So to sort of connect that history together and to realize that, you know, a a state park that that we enjoy right outside of the Twin Cities, Fort Snelling, was built, you know, partially as a fort, but also as a concentration camp for Dakota uh, Native Americans. That was like there was a moment that I was thinking about while we were at Fort Ridgely that I just, it's horrifying to think about U.S. history and that things that we found abhorrent in other countries were being practiced right here, not only in our country, but in a state that we love and we have a lot of affection for. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience. I, I, I you know, you're, you're kind of always vaguely aware of, of these things if, if you walk around in your day-to-day life trying to be a thoughtful informed person but yeah when we showed up at Fort Ridgely I wasn't really prepared for like as I said earlier I, I sort of summed it up as like a slap in the face or a gut punch and yeah it's uh to, to borrow a song lyric it's like you, you visit these places from time to time and it's like history just rears up and spits in your face and reminds you where you are and what had to happen for you to be here and I don't want I don't want this to be mistaken for let me put it this way. I, I don't think it's particularly like helpful or constructive to walk around with a great degree of guilt for the sins of, uh, you know, your ancestors. But I think what, if nothing else, what you can learn from understanding this history, this, this, these chapters of American history, is maybe just to look at what's happening in the current world. And when you see a powerful modern nation state dispossessing people, taking them uh, off their ancestral homeland, Maybe we should have the same reaction to that as we do, you know, when we're trying to come to terms with the the history of uh, of continental United States and what happened to indigenous peoples here. No. Politics uh, and our views on them without saying, you know, yeah. Yeah, so I am... Fort Ridgely and the historical site at Fort Ridgely. So there's a museum there run by the Minnesota Historical Society that's currently closed for COVID. But you can do this self-guided tour there. And it is well well worth the experience. And it was especially sort of interesting for us because there was nobody there. And it was um, quite cold and very windy. And it was just interesting to experience it as sort of a, a desolate place with deep and upsetting history. Well, you are forgetting the horned lark. 
You're right. There was one horned <laughs> lark there experiencing this with us. Yeah. So I don't know how much more I have to say about Fort Ridgely itself. Like David said, we, we both knew that this was going to be kind of a hard episode for us to do. Um, but I do have a, a, something sort of modern that I want to talk about. So one of the legacies of the U.S.'s genocide against its Native people and of our broken treaties is that Native American women, they experience a lot more violence than other women in the country, and they go missing at a much higher rate. So four out of five Native women are affected by violence, and Native American women face murder rates of more than 10% of the national average, and homicide is the third leading cause of Native American women and girls ages 10 to 24. And this is a cause that's really close to my heart because I worked for a, a Native American domestic violence shelter here in the Twin Cities. So I'm going to drop some information in the show notes and just let you know where you could send some money or how to better educate yourself on this issue. Yeah, um, I know kind of a somber episode, kind of a somber, you know, note to end on. But yeah, we just, you know, we kind of decided when we were at the park that this is something that, you know, we shouldn't shy away from. And from time to time, when we encounter a sort of, uh, a, a sort of, I don't know, this may, this might sound like dismissive, but you encounter a certain vibe in a certain place. And it's like, you just have to not ignore that and share that. Yeah. So while we look, while we look forward to visiting Fort Ridgely for the hiking in the summer, we would really encourage you all to take a day, a weekend to drive down there and visit the historical site and really try to uh, experience history in a very living sort of a way. Well, until next time, this is uh, Kelly and David, Adventure Within Reason podcast. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.